Take your Bible this morning and turn in the Old Testament to the book of Isaiah. The book of Isaiah chapter 7. And I want to ask you this morning as we begin, what is the greatest promise that you've ever been given? The greatest promise that's ever been made to you? And how did that promise make you feel? Hopeful? Yes? Oh, wow. I mean, you thought about the the possibilities of what could be because of that promise and how wonderful it would be. And then how is it that you felt when that promise was fulfilled? Well, I want to talk to you today about God's promise to us. You know, sometimes life has a way of making us think that our biggest problems are those that are most immediately in front of us, right? Like whatever I'm dealing with at this very moment is not only the biggest problem in my life, but it's the biggest problem in everybody's life. Let's all put down whatever you're dealing with and deal with my stuff, my issue or my problem, and then we'll deal with yours. I mean, immediately after mine is solved, right? That life has a way of making us feel that way, and it can cause us to get distracted by that. But God never gets distracted by life's crises. You ever think about that? Never gets distracted by life's crises. And he is working continually so that we will not get distracted by them either. Because when we get distracted, we shift our focus. And when we shift our focus, we lose the source of our hope. You see, God wants us to trust him at all times. And he gives to us promises with which we can guard our hearts and minds to remain focused on Jesus. Let me give you a little bit of historical context of Isaiah chapter 7. When you look at Isaiah 6, you see that the way Isaiah begins that chapter is to say, in the year that King Uzziah died. Now, that's a typical historical marker in that day, that the life of the king would become a critical historical marker to mark the eras of history uh, of the Old Testament specifically. But when we come to Isaiah 7, we know this, that King Uzziah has died. And the nation of Judah, which is the southern part of what used to be the united nation of Israel, but then was split through war. Israel became the northern part and Judah became the southern part. And so Judah is is the nation that Ahaz, uh, Uzziah's grandson, has now taken over. And and they're in turmoil. And it's very difficult to fully understand for us how difficult of a season this is for Judah. Because in order for us to understand that, we would have to know how great of a king Uzziah had been for them. It, It was a season of prosperity and it was a season of peace. That they greatly enjoyed and and so much wrong had been righted under the rule of Uzziah. But once he died, things began to fall apart again. And like any good roller coaster that goes up and down and completely steals you, uh, steals your stomach from you and then delivers it to you in a way that you can't hold it, you know. That's what the history of Israel was like through these kings. And Uzziah was a high point. And they were plummeting at this point. 
to a very low season. Ahaz was now the king. He was Uzziah's grandson, and he was shifting the nation's course away from God, and he was proving to not be as great of a ruler like his grandfather was. You see, Syria and Israel, the northern part, wanted to conquer Judah because they were being threatened by Assyria. And if they didn't unite their forces, they would not be able to withstand the next attack of Assyria. And because Judah didn't want anything to do with them under Uzziah's rule, they were threatening now that Uzziah had died. You see, a a shift in leadership created a perceived weakness in the nation. And the nation had to demonstrate whether or not it would be weak or whether or not it would be strong. And because they didn't want to ally themselves with Israel and Syria, Israel and Syria had joined forces to conquer Judah and to force them to fight together with them. And so that's where we find ourselves when we come to Isaiah 7. Assyria is set to attack the second time and they will come with a forceful violence. The, the, The depth to which Assyria would penetrate a nation and do violent and inhumane kind of deeds against them was it's it's unfathomable in our day but most importantly here's what's taking place not everything that's going on around them but what's taking place within the nation itself. And Ahaz is moving away from God and away from his promise. You see, as we've seen so many times in the scripture, Ahaz took the promise of God for the people and he took it to mean that he could do what he wanted instead of taking it as God intended it to bear and to hold faithful to the house of David. If you read the scripture, you will find that the promise is not just given to Ahaz and to the people, but it's given to the house of David. In other words, God's promise that a savior would come through a lineage. And it was the lineage of the house of David. And Ahaz thought, I'm the next king on the throne. It must be me. But as can be so difficult for people to understand, no, in fact, you're not the savior Jesus will be the Savior. And what's happening is Ahaz knows internally he doesn't have a clue about what to do. And he's not prepared to do anything that will matter. He is scared and he doesn't know what to do. But he's too proud to admit it. But friends, God is never threatened. No matter how strong or powerful the opposing force may seem to be. And what God does in Isaiah 7 is he sends Isaiah to Ahaz to remind him of who is God, to encourage him with God's promise, and hopefully to give him direction so Ahaz would turn from his own way and follow the way of of God. Look at verse 3 as we pick up in chapter 7. And the Lord said to Isaiah, so he's telling him what he will say to Ahaz. Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Sheir Jashub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. Got that? Wow, those are some directions, right? Go down to that barn which used to be there but hadn't been there in 30 years. Hang a right. 
You'll go to the old Wilson place. Four generations ago, they lived there. Do not miss that because there's six different ways. You take the second from the third right. You know, and I mean, you're like, whoa, that's what it sounds like here, right? And say to him, be careful. Be quiet. Do not fear and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Remalia. Because Syria, with Ephraim and the son of Remalia, has devised evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and terrify it and let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabil as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, It shall not stand and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is reason. And within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Remelia. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Let's pause there for a moment. God says to Ahaz, do not fear. Those who oppose you are not what they appear to be. They are nothing more than smoldering firewood. They're already on fire. They're already being consumed. It's just a matter of time before they burn out. They will not be victorious. But you must trust me or you will not stand either if you mark in your bible to help you remember verses that you should hold to no matter what verse 9 is one such verse because if you will remember verse 9 it will help you in every situation of life that if you are not firm in faith with the lord you will not be firm at all it'll save you a lot of heartache to remember that. So, to show Ahaz his promise was enough, God told Ahaz to ask for a sign. Now, you don't just go asking God for a sign because that can be a test of God and we should never set out of our own motivation to test God. But when God commands you to ask for a sign, you shouldn't do anything other than ask for a sign. Look at verse 10. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. Wow, that's huge. In other words, there is no boundary with which you can be limited by the sign you ask of God. Seems like that would pretty much solve it, right? Verse 12. But Ahaz said, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. Nothing like some good legalism to hide our unbelief, right? And he said... Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. 
Friends, Ahaz was told to ask for a sign from God. As a matter of fact, a sign that knew no boundaries. God wanted Ahaz to know what it is that he would do for him and how he would act. And as it seems at first, Ahaz seemed to have pure motives, but they're only self-serving motives. You see, Ahaz wanted a way to fix the situation instead of having to trust God. He wanted a way where he could fix the problem or that God would fix the problem. But regardless of who fixed it, Ahaz would get credit. He would be able to take the glory for it. But what Ahaz didn't recognize is that the promise of God had not just been to him, but rather to the house of David and not the pride of Ahaz. You see, friends, God works for his will and for his glory to save and redeem, not just for our agenda. Friends, Ahaz is full of pride, and pride always intensifies fear and anxiety. Fear and anxiety always lead to wrong conclusions and for us to do stupid things. And with anyone who is full of self, Pride is always threatened by God's promise to prevent us from trusting because of who it insinuates will receive the glory. So when his promise comes, God's promise sounds more like a threat with a deadline than it does hope to which we are held by. And this is Ahaz's problem. He was prideful and he didn't want to be bothered with God. And so instead of seeking God's will and God's way, he made alliances with foreign kings to try and secure the security of his nation. But friends, when you build a crumbling house around you and you dare to live in it, it will be you that gets crushed by the crumbling of the house. So God speaks and he says what he says in verse 13. Hear then, O house of David, you will not weary men, but you will weary God. You've already tested him. The Lord will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Verse 15, he shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. Friends, though Ahaz refuses to ask for a sign, Isaiah gives the full measure of God's promise. Why? Because there's nothing about God's promise that tells us anything other than God is laboring for our good. You see, the problem is sometimes we don't see as good, we don't see it as good what God calls good for us. And chapter 7 and the remainder of the chapter continues to describe what it is that will come to pass. Isaiah tells of a sign that will point to the sureness of God's promise. In other words, God says this, here's what I'll promise you. These nations will be deplete before my promise is fulfilled. 
You see, a sign is anything that the Lord uses to remind people of his promise. And here, that sign is a son whose name will be Emmanuel. Friends, God gives us his promise to teach us this, to trust in him. King Uzziah was dead. That was the prevailing dark cloud hanging over the nation. But what God wanted people to understand is that though King Uzziah was dead, the king of kings was still coming. And there was nothing that could thwart the plan of God. You see, friends, this passage shows us that God's promise to us is purposeful for us. God never utters empty words. His word is sure. It is certain. Every time to every extent. Every detail is intended to conjure our hope in him that it might deepen our faith in what we see him bring about. God's promise is the most sure and the most certain of all realities because it is his word delivered. It always comes in the face of threatening doom and destruction, but it is never in question as to whether it will be fulfilled. That's what God is laboring for, for us to believe in him in such a way. Big problems and big challenges call for great solutions. And friends, when God speaks, his answer is far greater than any immediate solution could ever be to our problems. I want you to understand this today, friends. God gives his promise in Jesus to establish our faith in him at all times. God gives his promise in Jesus to establish our faith in him at all times. God gives a sign to point to his promise of a savior, his Messiah. We know that this passage and all the things that it's doing immediately for the people of God in that day is also doing an ultimate work of God for the people. For this will be the passage that is the foundation for the announcement of Jesus' birth when we get to the New Testament. God's making good on his promise. He has made good on it. He will make good on it. His promise has been completed for us, though not completely fulfilled. But I want you to understand today, friends, that promises are intentional instruments in God's plan. They are not for us to be lightly dealt with, but rather solemnly held to. Let me ask you this. What's your favorite promise in the Bible? Do you have a favorite promise? I want to ask you to do something today. I don't usually have this much audience participation, but I want you to write that promise down. Just to take that note sheet out there on your sermon notes, and if you don't write anything else down, write down either the scripture reference or, or uh, something that would help you to remember or write the actual promise itself. What's your favorite promise in the Bible? You got it? I want you to hold to it. Because we're going to come back with a little all-group exercise at the end. I know you're excited. I can feel it. It's just rising. Write it down. We'll revisit it towards the end of the message today. Have you ever wondered or even considered why it is that God uses promises? Well, why does God make promises? 
I think what you're going to see today, and I'm hoping that what we see together today is, is something that will deepen and enrich your celebration of this Christmas season. Why does God use promises? I want you to see three understandings about God's promises to grow and to strengthen our faith in Him. The first understanding I want you to gain this morning is this, that God gives promises because he wants to strengthen our faith in him. God gives promises because he wants to strengthen our faith in him. When God sends Isaiah to Ahaz to say, these countries will not conquer, he first says this to Ahaz, if you are not firm in your faith, you will not be firm at all. He didn't say, if you're not firm in your demands of me, He said, if you're not firm in your faith in me, when we don't trust God, whatever else may occur really doesn't matter. You see, faith in God is the starting point of life with God. It's not contingent. It's not mitigated faith. It's not contracted or, excuse me, contractual or calculated faith. It's just faith. You see, friends, faith that holds on to any kind of escape clause is nothing more than a delusion. Faith that says, God, I'll believe you, but if, when, it's a, you're delusional, you're, you're deceiving yourself. God gives his promise to, to call our attention to him, to attend every faculty of our being to his being and to strengthen from within us our faith in him. He's fixing our attention on the Lord because that's the only way that we can strengthen our faith. Because when we are weak, friends, when we have a lack of faith, it always results from too little of Jesus filling our lives. So God directs Ahaz, be careful, be quiet, do not fear. That's a lot right there. I mean, be careful, be quiet, do not fear. And do not let your heart be faint because of two smoldering stumps of firebrand I I love that that's divine smack talk right there that's what that is let me tell you what it is more than divine smack talk it is the painting of reality by the one who determines reality and when God says something about something that we see but what he says doesn't align with the perspective of which we hold over it It's not time for God to get right. It's time for us to align our thinking with what he says about it. And friends, that's our biggest trouble. Is that every expression where we fail to believe in God is simply nothing more than this. That we believe something about what is immediately challenging or threatening us. That God just simply says, that's not true. That's not true. And we want to believe what we think about it more than what God has said about it. God has a greater glory for Ahaz to see because there's a deeper, but, but he can't because there's a deeper issue that Ahaz will not admit. Friends, God always holds a greater glory in his will and in his way than only in that immediate situation that's in front of you. And here's what you need to believe, but we struggle to believe that God cares about you. God cares about you, but he's never threatened by the things that threaten you. We 
We think God is like us. That's painful to acknowledge. But every time we believe that somehow God is limited by the things that limit us or threatened by the things that threaten us, that they provide to him the same threat they give to us. And that's not true. That's why God says you must be firm in your faith or you will not be firm at all. God works to address the issues of our life that weaken our faith so we can be strengthened to look to and to trust in him at all times. That's why he gives us promises, friends. Friends, the person that you trust most is not the one who makes the most promises, right? But it's the one who knows how to make a promise and keep it. And here's why you can always trust God's promises. Ahaz wanted a quick fix for his situation. I'm not going to spend too much time on that because I'm sure there's nobody here that's just wanted a quick fix. But isn't that usually our demand? And through promise, God points to his will and to his way not to serve our purpose or demand. He was working for his glory through the house of David through which not just the salvation of his people in Judah would come, but through the salvation of all people, all nations. Every nation, tribe, and tongue, the Great Commission tells us. God always has eternal value for our life, even when we don't or can't see it. And God's promises always point to our eternal hope in Jesus Christ, where all of God's promises are perfectly fulfilled with a yes and amen. 1 Corinthians 1.20 reminds us, For all the promises of God find their yes in Him. That is why it is through Him that we utter our amen to God for His glory. Do you know what yes means of the yes and amen? Yes, God's promise is sure. Do you know what amen means? It means you will align your life through faith to that promise. That you agree Not just in word, but also in being and in deed with what God has said. The more we hold to God's promise, the stronger our faith and the deeper our understanding of him becomes. The more we work our own agenda, the less God even seems relevant to us. And until you've said yes to Jesus and put your faith in him alone, you've not said amen to God's will, to God's purpose, or God's plan for your life. God gives every promise for one reason, friends, for one reason, to strengthen and to deepen our faith in him. The second understanding I want you to see today is this, that God uses promises because they have a cleansing, a purifying work in us. He's not only intentional for why he gives them, but he's intentional for how it is and what it is that they do. You see, here's the hard part about a promise, right? The time between when it gets made And when it is fulfilled. Man, that can be two seconds and it can seem like two millennia. Right? The key to holding to the promise is what? Gritting your teeth and trying to survive? No, you'll never make it. Rather to focus on the faithfulness of the promiser and the goodness of his reward. That's the key. See, Ahaz doesn't believe God's promise 
And listen to what one commentator says. He doesn't want to believe it. I mean, just go straight to the heart of it here. He prefers dismay and hand-wringing. He feels more normal frantically devising his own salvation and lusting for the success of his own plans rather than delighting in the victory of God because his heart is hard. We, we are so Ahazish, are we not? We say to God, God, if only you would do this or only if you would take care of that, I would trust and never doubt again. But God knows what we know. No, we won't. No, we won't. Friends, if you're not firm in your faith to trust God's promise, knowing who he is, you won't be firm at all. Not even in the fulfillment of it. And what God is doing in the time between promise made and promise fulfilled is he is working to to purge our lives, to to cleanse us, to, to purify from the things that are threatening our faith and weakening us in our trust of him. He's working to cleanse our lives from that which steals our trust in him. When you hold to a promise, anything that opposes it will attack and threaten it in the midst of holding to it. Every moment of waiting between promise given and promise fulfilled gets filled with every opportunity to forsake the promise. And nothing presses us to see our unbelief like having to wait on God's promise made to be fulfilled. And with each temptation, the question beckons to us, will we trust God or will we go our own hand-wringing, anxiety-laden, worry-filled, fear-driven way? Friends, let me ask you this. Are you making your own way in this world? Are you making your own way in this world? Think about it. We mask our authenticity because vulnerability is too risky. And quite frankly, the payoff of community just isn't quite worth it. So we mitigate our lives and the way in which we open it up to get enough, what we measure out as enough, instead of what God calls us to. We confess acceptable sins so we can avoid confessing offensive ones. We devise a better plan for our money because God's plan just can't quite be trusted with it. We incorporate as much as we can. God, you ought to be happy with this. Look how much of your wisdom I've used. We use sex as a tool for pleasure because God didn't know what he was doing. We get to use it our way. You you wonder why we have the confusion in our culture because we have the chaos in the church. And until the church begins to celebrate God's plan for sex... The culture's never going to get it. In our day-to-day, statistically, cohabitation replaces marriage as a more hopeful replacement. Why? Because really, commitment to others is just not worth the risk. And there are so many practical advantages, regardless of what the statistics tell us. You see, the list is endless for how we forsake God's promise because we'll not trust him as he cleanses us from our fear, our worry, our anxiety, and our cares in the midst of our situation. Listen to what that same commentator goes on to say about this passage. This is so insightful. Inevitably, God brings us into crisis. Are you okay with that? Why is he doing that? Because if he doesn't, 
He can't confront what's preventing us from believing him. Sooner or later, this question presses itself upon us. If I put my trust in God, will he save me? Will he be true to his promises in the gospel when it really counts for me? And our answer to that question will either be an agonized struggle back and forth as we are unable to make up our minds, or our answer will be a clear yes and amen. And the larger point Isaiah is making is that God's people don't trust him as they should, and they pay a price for it. But his grace will have the last word on their behalf. The triumph of his grace over their failure. Friends, are you listening to the Lord to trust him and his way for your life? God's promises speak hope into our current situation by giving a much greater perspective than the limitation of our situation. Promises point to greater glory. And hope comes from greater glory. God uses promises to cleanse our life of all that prevents us from trusting in him. The third understanding I want you to have of God's promises today is that God gives promises to build relationship. Boy, if there's anything that we need to hear today, it's this. Instead of thinking the way we so often think because of sin, that God's trying to cut me off, maybe God's trying to draw me in more deeply. God's promises are purposeful. You see, friends, promise builds trust. Trust builds relationship. Relationship builds intimacy. And the reward of promise is intimate relationship. Listen, friends, God gives promises to build intimacy with him so that we can know we are known, loved, and accepted. And I don't care who you are. There's not a person in the room or that will ever darken the door of this place that doesn't want to be known, loved, and accepted deeply. Trust given without knowledge or experience gained, it's one of two things. It's either completely gullible or it's manipulatively deceptive. Trust only comes by experience in relationship, but that builds intimacy. You see, in relationship, knowledge of trust that comes through experience is the definition of intimacy. How did you get so close? Well, and you begin to describe how it is you came to know one another when you were forced to trust one another and through that experience, intimacy was built. Intimacy provides a bedrock for greater trust that cannot be shaken, but intimacy that is absent of trust only creates betrayal. You see, relationship cannot grow without trust. And when we fail to trust what we know to be true of God, we forsake intimacy with him. We are finding our own way to call it a relationship with God that is absent of the demand of faith. 
We say that we can be intimate with God, that we can know him because we put our intellect, we put our experience or or emotion on the midst of that, or we apply our will to that, but we fail to put trust into the mix and we claim what God says will never be. God is working for us to trust him, not just what we can do or what he can do for us. That's what Ahaz wanted. That's what you and I want. And God says, if I give that to you, you will forsake me with it. But God gives a promise. So we will look to him to trust him as we deepen and strengthen our relationship with him. Friends, God gives his promise in Jesus to establish our faith in him at all times. And these three understandings help us to see how God is working to deepen our relationship with him. Christmas, friends, is the celebration of God's sign of promise fulfilled. Quite frankly, if Calvary and the resurrection had never happened, Christmas would be meaningless. You should hope for what's under the tree as your best option for the way that the year is going to end up because there wouldn't be a bigger hope. But because Christ died and because he rose again, Christmas all of a sudden has a whole new meaning. There is a sign that says God will be faithful to his promise. He will be faithful to every promise. And I can say yes and amen to whatever he says because his promise is sure and certain. Emmanuel is God with us. God's Messiah has come and he is Jesus. He is Jesus. God gives his promise in Jesus to establish our faith in him at all times. Now, I want to conclude with this exercise, but I need to move quickly. I want to help you with an exercise to understand how you can hold to God's promise and center them on Jesus. Because when we forget why God gives promises, we'll end up wrapping that promise around the wrong center. And when we wrap it around the wrong center, it will be useless, but God will get blamed for it. So here's an exercise to help you clothe your life with God's promise that's centered on Jesus. Go back to that favorite promise in God's word. You might have a little homework to do, but that's okay. It'll be good homework. Number one, ask yourself, do I know what this promise means in its proper textual context? Do I understand what it means? If you don't know what the word means... And you just say, well, Jesus, because we're in church or I'm a Christian. And, you, you know, you might get the right answer, but you don't have a clue how you got it. You need to show your work. Right? Why? Because here's the thing. You'll keep saying Jesus, but it'll become nothing but a hollow incantation that any other religious practice would offer. Ask yourself this. Who was it originally given to? What did it mean? How does that apply to Christians today? Is there anything you need to do in order to receive that promise? These are basic fundamental questions of understanding and interpreting the Scripture, but know what the promise means in its textual context. Secondly, who's at the center of God's promise that you're holding? Is Jesus at the center or are you at the center? Is God's greatest glory because of what he does for you or to you? Or is it because of what he's done in Jesus and how it is that your life is blessed because of Christ? Here's how you can know who's at the center of your promise. Does God's promise strengthen and deepen your faith in Jesus? Not your abilities, not not whether or not you're going to make a great escape, but in Jesus. Does it strengthen your faith in Jesus as Savior? How does that promise remind you of God's saving grace in Jesus and then well up with gratitude and praise to him? 
Listen, friends, if the promises of God don't create greater praise in you for Jesus, Jesus is not at the center of them. You are. Does God's promise strengthen and deepen your faith in Jesus as your great shepherd? How does it turn your eyes to Jesus for your provision, for your protection, for your direction in life? Are you seeking direction from Jesus as the great shepherd? Or are you going, God, this is what I'm going to do. I expect that you'll make it all right. Does God's promise strengthen and deepen your faith in Jesus as your redeemer? How is it that, that, that as you confess and repent of your sin, the promise of God reminds you to walk with Jesus in truth and in righteousness instead in that same rut that sin has kept you bound in? You see, as your redeemer, he doesn't only rise or bring you out from the grave, but he sets his righteousness on you. He redeems your life for glory. And that glory is found as you walk by faith in his truth and in his righteousness. How does God's promise strengthen and deepen your faith in Jesus as Lord? How is it leading you to honor Jesus by walking obediently? Under his lordship. And finally, how does God's promise strengthen and deepen your faith in Jesus for greater glory? How do you celebrate? How do you observe? How do you hope or obey God's promises? Listen to Colossians 3, 1 through 4. And I challenge you with this passage this Christmas season. If then you have been raised with Christ. In other words, if you're a Christian. Seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. God gives his promise in Jesus to establish our faith in him at all times, in all situations. Let's pray.